0: This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Imperative War. What is it good for? Absolutely. Well, you know the rest. Throughout military history, humans have been constantly looking for ways to gain the upper hand on the battlefield. The thickest armor? The fastest technology? The biggest elephant? Yes. Animals have been drafted into the playbooks of military strategy for millennia. From horses in the cavalry, to mind-detecting canines, to mission-ready dolphins, animals — from the smallest to the largest — have been our unwilling partners on the front line. Elephants have long been used in warfare throughout the world, from India to China to Africa and moving north to the Mediterranean. Fully decked out in armor and metal spikes added to their tusks, elephants were imposing and vicious. There's even a term for a military unit with elephant-mounted troops – elephantry. The massive beasts were primarily used to charge the enemy and force them to break rank. But elephants played a secondary role as well. They terrified the enemy. The fear that they instilled in the opposition could be enough to turn the tide in your favor. Alexander the Great found himself staring down 15 elephants when he fought the Persians in 331 BCE. The night before the battle, he made a sacrifice to the god of fear. The sacrifice may have worked because Alexander won. He also captured the elephants, bringing them into his arsenal and ultimately influencing his future campaigns and strategies. Another historical figure known for his use of elephantry was Hannibal of Carthage. As he and his troops marched to Rome during the Second Punic War, he famously crossed the Alps with an army of war elephants. Unfortunately, many of the elephants did not survive the crossing due to the harsh conditions of the Alps. But those who made it, evoked fear and terror in the Roman warriors at the Battle of Trebia. So, you're one of those Roman warriors. You're standing on the field of battle staring down a charging elephant. What do you do? You could stand to the side and let it rush through the line, and throw a spear or two at its unshielded legs and hope that they pierce its thick skin. But then, the elephant has done what it's supposed to do. It forced you to break rank and created a bit of chaos. This approach worked to a certain extent, but there must have been a better way. The Romans seemed to be constantly facing elephants in battle, and spent a lot of time thinking about how to manage this formidable foe. They developed an arsenal of anti-elephant devices, including ox-drawn wagons with spikes to cause damage, pots of fire to scare them, and pigs. Lots and lots of pigs. According to Pliny the Elder, Roman author, philosopher, and military commander of the early Roman Empire, quote, elephants are scared by the smallest squeal of the hog. So, we started with war elephants, and to combat them, the Romans are now releasing war pigs. But why stop there? Why simply release a few pigs onto the battlefield and hope they squeal enough to slow down the mighty elephant, when you can set them on fire and really make sure you drive the point home? Incendiary pigs, or flaming pigs, were coated in pitch, or crude oil, set on fire, and launched at the war elephants. The elephants reacted as we all would to these animated pigs. They were terrified and ran amok, trampling large numbers of their own soldiers. Pliny the Elder also wrote that, When wounded and panic-stricken, elephants invariably fall back, and become no less formidable for the destruction which they deal to their own side than to their opponents. In a David vs. Goliath face-off, once again, put your money on the underdog, or in this case, the underpig. Especially if it's on fire. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. The Mexican free-tailed bat is at the opposite end of the size scale from the elephant. Mexican free-tailed bats are about three and a half inches long, weigh between a quarter and half a gram, and are one of the most common mammals in North America. Hardly the terrifying weapon of attack like elephants or flaming pigs. But these tiny-winged warriors were at the heart of an experimental weapons program run by the U.S. during World War II that feels like it belongs on the pages of a pulp fiction novel. On December 7, 1941, a dental surgeon named Dr. Lyle Adams was vacationing in the southwest U.S. That was the day that Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. As Commander in Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense. Like all Americans, Dr. Adams was shocked by the attack on U.S. soil and started to consider ways to counter the Japanese offensive. Adams had just visited Carlsbad Caverns National Park in New Mexico, where he had been wowed by the bats in their natural habitat. Carlsbad Caverns is home to many, many bats. The population of Mexican free-tailed bats was once estimated to be in the millions, although that number has come down significantly in recent years. The bats live in the aptly named Bat Cave, and there are so many of them that when they emerge they come out in a dense group that twists upward like a tornado and can take up to three hours for them all to exit. While on his vacation, Dr. Adams had learned a lot about bats. He learned that they possessed a natural strength and could carry a sizable payload proportional to their body weight. He learned that the bats hibernated when they were cold. He observed that bats were nocturnal and roosted before dawn. And he saw that there were millions of them. Dr. Adams also knew that most of Japan's infrastructure and buildings were made of wood, not concrete. He then put two and two together and came up with a plan that was so crazy, it might just work. Dr. Adams reflected in a 1948 magazine interview quote, Couldn't those millions of bats be fitted with incendiary bombs and dropped from planes? His idea was to attach time release incendiary bombs to bats. The bats would be dropped over Tokyo while it was still nighttime. As night turned to day, they would find a place to roost in one of the millions of buildings throughout the city. And then, when the bombs went off, thousands of fires would be lit, creating chaos and burning the city to the ground. On January 12, 1942, Dr. Adams sent a letter to the White House explaining his plan. The White House had received hundreds, if not thousands, of ideas from concerned citizens. But Dr. Adams' plan was shortlisted and made it to the desk of President Roosevelt. Now, for someone who was so impressed by Bats on his vacation, he didn't represent them in a very positive light. He called bats the lowest form of animal life and that the reason for its creation has remained unexplained, at least until now, because Dr. Adams stated that bats were created, quote, by God to await this hour to play their part in the scheme of free human existence and to frustrate any attempt of those to dare desecrate our way of life. Pretty fancy language for a plan that sounds like it was pulled from a Roadrunner and Coyote cartoon. but it worked. President Roosevelt approved the plan. Not a surprise since Dr. Adams had a small foot in the White House door. He had made an acquaintance with the First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt. He was also a successful inventor, having developed an airmail pickup system that did not require the plane to touch down. That method was implemented in the 1920s and 30s. So when Roosevelt saw Dr. Adams' plan, He was familiar with his name and passed his plan along to Colonel William J. Donovan, the coordinator of information, with the note, quote, This man is not a nut. It sounds like a perfectly wild idea, but it's worth looking into. The doctor's plan was then sent to the National Defense Research Committee, or NDRC, where a special research assistant named Donald Griffin examined the idea in greater detail. Griffin was a leading expert on bats and was the first to prove that they navigate using sound calling their method echolocation. He was called upon to assess Adams' plan and provided the following evaluation to the NDRC. This proposal seems bizarre and visionary at first glance, but extensive experience with experimental biology convinces the writer that if executed competently, it would have every chance of success. This was the credibility Dr. Adams' plan needed. It was approved and assigned to the U.S. Army Air Forces The bomb development was assigned to the Army Chemical Warfare Service, or CWS. And with that, the seemingly crazy military plan, drafted by a dentist, was off and running. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... There were three key questions that needed to be answered for the plan to be successful. First, what type of bat should they use? Second, what type of bomb should they attach? And third, how do they deploy the bats? Given the insanity of the plan, you've probably already guessed that none of these questions were easily answered. Let's start with what type of bat. The dentist was put in charge of creating the winged army. He pulled together a motley crew of researchers, including mammologist Dr. Jack Van Bloker, and his two high school student assistants, Jack Kofer and Henry Fletcher, pilot and actor, Lieutenant Tim Holt, ex-hotel manager Bobby Harold, his brother and workout trainer, Eddie Harold, lobster fisherman and marine, Ray Williams, two more brothers, Frank and Mark Benish, and ex-gangster Patricio Patsy Batista who apparently used to work for Al Capone. While some of this crew makes sense, Jack Coffer said that he believed the rest were chosen for their loyalty to Dr. Adams. Coffer later wrote a book on his experience on the bat bomb team and said, quote, He chose them more for personality than technical expertise. The team set out to places where they would be able to find bats in large quantities. Dr. Adams later said, quote, We visited a thousand caves and three thousand mines. One car in our search team covered 350,000 miles. The team began with the largest bat, the mastiff, which has a wingspan of 20 inches and can carry a one pound stick of dynamite. Imagine thousands of bats descending upon Tokyo in the dark of night. It's the stuff of nightmares. Unfortunately for Adams and fortunately for the Japanese, they couldn't find enough of these massive creatures to execute the plan successfully. The team next looked at the pallid bat, which has a wingspan of 15 inches, but scientists concluded it wasn't enough for the mission. The team finally settled on the Mexican free-tailed bat. It was significantly smaller, but they numbered in the millions, and the tiny animals could carry a one-ounce bomb with ease. The next step in the plan was to capture a significant number of the Mexican free-tailed bat and begin experimentation. In his book. Jack Kofer noted that it didn't occur to the team to question, quote, "...the morality of the ecological consequences of sacrificing a few million bats." However, he said they rationalized it by thinking, quote, "...a million bat bombs could save a million lives." Once they had permission from the U.S. Park Services to harvest the large number of bats, collecting them was not difficult. The largest colony of Mexican free-tailed bats consisted of 20 to 30 million living in a single cave near Bandera, Texas. A CWS report stated that, quote, 5 hours time is required for these animals to leave the cave while flying out in a dense stream 15 feet in diameter, and so closely packed they can barely fly. All the team needed to do was wave a large net when the bats flew out. It was like catching bats in a barrel. So, we know what bats they used. Now they needed to find the right bomb to attach to them. Because the Mexican free-tailed bat can only carry roughly its own weight, the team needed to develop an incendiary device weighing no more than one ounce. Dr. Lewis Pfizer joined the project as chief chemist. White phosphorus was the original chemical proposed, but Pfizer decided to replace that with something he had just developed, napalm, Napalm burns at a high temperature and for a longer time than gasoline. It would be a perfect incendiary for the bats to carry. Pfizer also created a capsule to hold the napalm and a time-delay fuse to ignite it. The entire device came in at less than one ounce, and Kofer described it as "...little, about as big as my forefinger to the second joint." The bombs were connected to the breast of each bat with a surgical clip and a short piece of string. Okay, so now they've got the bat, and now they've got the bomb attached to the bat. Now we need to get both onto a plane and over to Tokyo. This was Adams' third challenge. How do they deploy the bats? Adams knew that bats hibernated in cold temperatures, which made them easy to manipulate and transport. His plan was to force the bats into hibernation for the journey overseas but he needed a way to wake the bats when they arrived at their destination. Dr. Adams couldn't simply drop hibernating bats because they would crash to the ground. And if they woke in the plane, well, that would just be chaos. And there was the risk that the bats would set off their incendiary devices. Adams' first idea was to use a cardboard container that opened at about a thousand feet. According to a CWS report, the bats were expected to quote, fly into hiding in dwellings or other structures, gnaw through the string, And leave the bombs behind. This plan was first tested in early May 1943 in California. 3,500 bats were outfitted with dummy bombs and dropped from a B-25 flying at 5,000 feet. Unfortunately, most of the bats did not fully wake up from hibernation and plummeted to the ground like tiny bags of wet cement. Undeterred, the team moved their testing to an Army Forces airfield in Carlsbad, New Mexico, a few days later, the tests continued. It went about as well as expected. There were many complications. Many of the bats didn't wake up in time and again plummeted to the ground. The cardboard cartons didn't function properly. The surgical clips were difficult to attach to the bats. But none of this deterred Adams and his team. Over the next few days, they made adjustments, but now the bats were waking up too quickly and escaping never to be seen again. The testing took a decided turn for the worse when six bats carrying live bombs escaped and set fire to the new airfield's unused hangar, barracks, control tower, and other buildings, as well as a general's car. At the end of the testing period, the CWS submitted a secret report dated June 8, 1943. There needed to be a better time-delay parachute-type container, new clips to attach the bombs to the bats, a simplified time-delay igniter, and a deeper study into the hibernation of bats. So pretty much the entire strategy. At this point, the Army wiped its hands clean of the project and passed it over to the Navy to see if they would have any better luck. I guess burning a new airfield to the ground was the end of their patience. The Navy gave the project a new name, Project X-Ray, and assigned it to the Marines for further research. Dr. Adams was as positive as ever. He took learnings from the unsuccessful rounds of testing and developed the bat bomb canister. The canister consisted of a series of round trays that had small compartments in them like an egg carton that held the hibernating bats. There were 26 trays stacked in a sheet metal tube. When the canister was dropped, a parachute would deploy at 4,000 feet to slow the descent as the sides of the sheet metal tube blew off the 26 trays separated like an accordion. The bats would have time to emerge from their hibernation, and when they flew away, they would pull a thin wire that activated the 30-minute time-delay fuse on the bomb. Each tray carried 40 bats. Each canister carried 26 trays. One bat-bomb canister could deliver 1,040 bats carrying bombs, which could then span out to a 40-mile radius and roost, waiting for the bombs to deploy. The new canisters were tested on December 13, 1943, at Dugway Proving Ground outside Salt Lake City, Utah. Fun fact, these bat bomb canisters were manufactured in a factory owned by famous singer Bing Crosby. Thirty fires were started in a mock Japanese village built for the test, but 22 of them extinguished on their own. However, four of the fires were big enough that they could have caused significant damage in a city full of wooden buildings like Tokyo. It was determined that the incendiary devices were not powerful enough, so new, stronger ones were created. A full-scale test was planned for August 1944, but it would never come to be. Fleet Admiral Ernest J. King, Chief of Naval Operations, learned that the BATS would not be ready for deployment until mid-1945. It was taking too long and costing way too much, thanks to a $2 million price tag, or roughly $30 million today. He pulled the plug on Project X-Ray. In the official report, the project was cancelled quote, not based on any shortcomings on the incendiary and time units developed, but rather upon the shortcomings of the fundamental idea and the opportunity of getting sufficient reliable data in order to plan a timely operation. Mind you, there was probably another reason Project X-Ray was canceled. Around the same time, there was another top secret military project underway. Adams told his team about an interaction he had in Washington with a general who confused Project X-Ray with another secret project. Adams described the other project to his team as quote the silliest nonsense you have ever heard. That silly project was the atomic bomb. Jack Cofer, the research assistant, later wrote in his book, quote, there was no point in fiddling with bats when they had something like the atomic bomb. Dr. Adams was of course disappointed in the cancellation of his project. He believed that the fire set by the bat bombs would have been more destructive, but less deadly than the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He said, Think of thousands of fires breaking out simultaneously over a circle of 40 miles in diameter, for every bomb dropped. Japan could have been devastated, yet with a small loss of life. Dr. Adams was a resourceful man, full of great, if not a little crazy, ideas. Never one to limit himself to his dental practice, following the war, he invented a pellet that could be dropped from a plane to reseed the prairies. And probably his best idea, he tried to develop a fried chicken vending machine. The rest of Adam's Motley crew went their own ways and returned to their original careers, with Jack Cofer becoming a successful Hollywood cinematographer. Donald Griffin, the bat expert who provided the professional validation for Adam's plan, became a well-respected psychologist who made significant contributions to the area of animal cognition. He became an advocate of animal consciousness, and believed that animals were self-aware, like humans. Later in life, Griffin actively questioned his support of Adam's project and the weaponization of bats. But maybe he would have been okay with a British plan to use dead rats. Yes, from bat bombs to rat bombs. The Rat Bomb became legend at British Special Operations Executive, or SOE. The SOE was a secret organization developed to conduct sabotage and subversion by helping local resistance movements. Winston Churchill wanted to quote, set Europe ablaze, so the SOE channeled their inner Q and developed a series of hidden explosive devices that would make James Bond movies look second-rate. Actually, there was a Section Q at SOE and it's the inspiration for Ian Fleming's Bond books. In 1941, the SOE came up with their most brilliant idea yet. The explosive rat. Here's how it worked. They started by stuffing plastic explosives inside a dead rat. The rat was then hidden inside the coal near a boiler room in a factory, power station, or locomotive. When the person shoveling coal discovered the dead rat, They would promptly shovel it into the furnace to dispose of it. That would set off the bomb inside. You're probably thinking that a rat is relatively small and can only hold a small amount of explosive, but even a small explosion can puncture a highly pressurized boiler and cause a devastating blast. The idea was genius, if not a bit gross. Still, the Brits put the plan into motion. The first issue was to find a supplier of dead rats, no problem, an SOE officer posed as a medical student and purchased 100 rats, supposedly for laboratory experiments. The second issue they faced was how to get the plastic explosives inside the rats. Less fun, but still no problem. The rats were stuffed and sewn up again. As reported on an SOE file, quote, This device caused considerable trouble to the enemy, but not quite in the way that was intended. En route to Germany, the rats were intercepted. The container was seized by the Germans, and it seemed the legendary plan was over. Or was it? According to an SOE report, the discovery of the dead rats, full of explosives, had a beneficial secondary effect. The Germans became just a little obsessed with the rats, and the fear that more were on the way. A hunt began for the quote, hundreds of rats the enemy believed were distributed on the continent. The SEO concluded the report with quote, The trouble caused to them was a much greater success to us than if the rats had actually been used. So there you go. Three stories of unlikely animals being recruited into war against their will. And I guess it kind of worked out. But hey, when you think this far outside the box, things are bound to get a little wild. True is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by me. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. Cover art and design was created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Comments, questions? Get a hold of us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. A huge thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode.